The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffoltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Dr. William Cook. Dr. Cook is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Medicine, specializing in family medicine, addiction medicine, and HIV medicine to that end. He released a book in May called Canary in the Coal Mine, and it is a true story. It is uh, really intense. It is such a good book, and it has a serious warning with a hopeful ending in this book. Dr. Cook tells the story of uncovering an unprecedented healthcare disaster in his rural Indiana town. It was an opioid epidemic turned HIV outbreak, and we will talk about that uh, kind of that movement and how he learned about that. Today, we talk about this, and we will talk about how his faith propels him and how his activism journey has really unfolded before him and how he has responded to the patients that were walking into his office. Before we hear from Dr. Cook, if you have not done so already, if you would rate and review The New Activist on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, your stars and encouraging words are hugely helpful. Well, with no further ado, here is Dr. William Cook. Dr. Cook, I am curious when you were in med school and you were deciding what to specialize in, I'm curious what prompted you to study and to want to go into family medicine. Yeah, I decided to go into family medicine long before medical school, actually. Okay. Tell me about that. Why is that? For some reason, I've always had this sense from the time I can remember that I, I wanted to do something to leave the world a better place than I found it. I just didn't know what that was initially. When I was 15, I was admitted to the hospital, uh, the children's hospital with this uh, bleeding disorder. And it, it happened the night that I went forward at church to really kind of dedicate my life to serving God and serving people. Uh, and it seems significant that that happened the, the same night that I went forward. I was paying attention because it seemed significant to me. Yeah. And um, you know, these doctors were coming in, residents and students, and they were doing procedures and these tests, trying to figure out what was going on with me. And it, the whole thing fascinated me, and it, it captured my attention and my imagination. Um, and I you know, started thinking, well, may, maybe this is something I can do, is, is try to help people. And then I started thinking, well, if I'm going to do this, I, I really want to be able to help people that don't have access to this sort of help. And so really at the age of 15, I decided that I would go to a, a community that didn't have a doctor, didn't have access to, to medical care, and try to figure out how to bring them you know, greater access to the, the health and opportunities that they were lacking before. Of course, I didn't you know, understand all the ramifications of that at the time. But that's what I started, um, you know, journeying towards at, at the age of 15. It took me about 18 years to get there. Um, but eventually I opened a uh, family medicine practice in rural southern Indiana in a place that hadn't had a doctor in about three decades. 
Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Like how, how does a place not have a doctor? I mean, I understand it in theory, but what were people doing pre-doctor? Yeah. So Austin, um, you know, it was founded in the 1800s and they, they had had a doctor continuously up until about 1977, I believe. Yeah. And, um, the, the, last doctor practicing in, in Austin retired at that point and, and nobody came in to, to fill his shoes. There, there were a few pop-up clinics that, that lasted, you know, a few months or a year, but then they went away. And, and so really an entire generation uh, had grown up without readily available access to, to medical services, baseline screening for, uh, for things like cervical cancer, for example. When I first got there, I was, I was amazed. I was overwhelmed. Um, I had been to mission trips to mostly to Ecuador. Uh, for some reason, that that country really captured my heart. It's beautiful, and uh, the people are beautiful. And there's these uh, mountain villages that really are, are hard to get to that that don't have a lot of access. And so I, I kept going back there. Um, but w- what I found in Austin was so, so much worse in, in a lot of ways than than what I was seeing overseas. Um, partly because the people living in the zip codes around Austin had readily available access. Um, and here, here in the middle of, of the, you know, the wealthiest country in the world, there, there were people who had grown up literally without ever having seen a doctor before. One of the things that really struck me the most were the, the number of women who I diagnosed with cervical cancer early on. That's a cancer that should be preventable with readily available access to, to screening. No one should ever develop cervical cancer with, with good screening and prevention uh, tools. And so, you know, here I am diagnosing several women with, with, uh, with cervical cancer. A, a few of them went on to die. And that, that really um, disturbed me. And I, I realized that even in America, you know where you're born and how you're raised really has a, a big impact on your your outcome in life, and it's not just about you know that American value of rugged individualism that that I think we all believe in, but there's also these circumstances that are beyond our control that uh, impact our lives, even leading uh, sometimes to to early death. Yeah, that that was sort of the tip of the spear. It seems from the book that. That as you're starting to see patients come into your practice in this little town of Austin, Indiana, you start to realize like there there's a lot of systemic issues happening. So I, I guess I, I want to like balance this against what would be expected of a family doctor, because what would a typical family doctor in a typical town expect to see uh, on a weekly basis? What kind of clients are you seeing, and what are you what are you expecting? So to answer that question, we kind of have to talk about the healthcare system that's established in, in America, and it's a pay for you know fee for service um, model, and so physicians are incentivized to go to areas that have good um, reimbursement, um, so so wealthier areas with healthier people, um, and establish a practice and and basically you know be available to help people's healthy choices matter more. But most of those places, you know, they already have access to, you know, outside living spaces, transportation, good paying jobs, humane housing, uh, readily available, um, healthy foods and, and those sorts of things. Um, and it's, it's the places that 
that are left um, without doctors that are actually already at a disadvantage to begin with, oftentimes the unemployment is high. And, and so you have people without uh, employer insurance. Medicaid doesn't pay well. And some people, you know, are in between, you know, a, a good paying job with good insurance and Medicaid, um, the, the working poor, you know, per se, who don't have insurance, so the, the uninsured. And so if you go to an area uh, like Austin, you're kind of setting yourself up um, to have some financial problems to begin with. And, and so uh, physicians in general, to answer your question, tend to go to areas that, that have the higher paying jobs, the, the better quality of life, uh, because it's easier to, to stay in practice. After all, you know, medical practices are businesses, and, and in order to stay open to practice and to take care of anybody, you have to offset your, your overhead. So then what are you seeing? If, if that's the baseline, right, you're seeing something completely different in this now adopted small town of Austin, Indiana. You said that there was a higher rate you, that you're diagnosing people with cervical cancer because there was just no screening. But what else are you seeing that was, I guess, atypical of the norm? Yeah. So you had people who um, had lived for decades with uh, a disease like diabetes um, and were already you know, experiencing the late effects of diabetes like blindness and numbness in the fingers and toes, uh, sometimes losing, you know, parts of those, those, uh, digits. We also had, you know, kids who hadn't been, you know, fully vaccinated. And so they were at risk of, um, you know, infections and, and that sort of thing. In general, uh, what we see in a place like Austin, which is in a county called Scott County, Indiana, Scott County, uh, if you compare Scott County's life expectancy to a place like Hamilton County, which is considered the the highest um, rated health outcomes in the state, there, there's a 10-year uh, life expectancy difference between those two counties in the same state. That shouldn't happen in in America, where you know really you know the American dream uh, traditionally is that everyone, regardless of their circumstances at birth, have the, the equal access to, to reach their full potential. And when you have areas in the country where your circumstances at birth determine your health outcomes, your ability to achieve wealth, prosperity, wellness, there, there's something wrong there. It, there's, a, there's a system in place that is basically defining, you know, some lives matter more than others. What was the population of your city and your town that the system was failing? I I'm curious the, what the makeup was of these people. Was it all poverty? Was it truly people that just did not have money and so did not have access to the system? Or were there other factors at play? There were people who had transportation um, to get to a good paying job. They had good insurance yeah. and they had access um, there were others who, um, you know, th this is an area that uh, migrated up from from Appalachia for um, factory jobs, basically at, at Morgan Foods, uh, one of the largest food processing uh, factories in the country. And um, with deindustrialization that that occurred through the '70s and '80s, a lot of those jobs were lost, uh, but the people were still here, and. Uh, Without access to those those jobs, um, people weren't doing well. A lot of poverty set in 
during the eighties, um, Austin was the, the poorest, you know, area in the state and a lot of, um, you know, toxic stress related to that with, without being able to get to, you know, better paying jobs outside of the, the county, for example. So we had a situation where a lot of the people, um, in the area had transportation and had the ability to go outside of town to get a job, to see a doctor, those sorts of things. But then there was this, you know, significant minority, you know, maybe 20% of the town who was just kind of trapped in this uh, concentrated area of poverty that, that we see, you know, throughout the middle Midwest, the Rust Belt, Appalachia, and, and in urban settings as well, where we have clusters of poverty. And if you're born within that cluster of poverty, you know, you're grown up surrounded by that. And that's all you know, growing up and all you have access to. And, and to, to break out of that can be really um, daunting and, and difficult. You write about in the book that you found yourself in the midst of basically two healthcare disasters, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, the opioid epidemic, and as you put it, the worst drug-fueled HIV outbreak seen in rural America. I'd like to dig into those a bit because I don't want to assume that that everybody understands all of those two things. So can we start with the opioid epidemic? What makes opioids such an attractive drug to epidemic proportions and to this specific population that you are serving in Austin, Indiana? So opioids hit a particular area in the brain that... Um, really is the uh, the reinforcement of reward. And so when you have um, populations like this that are that are raised, born and raised in chronic toxic stress, um, oftentimes with only one parent, sometimes uh, those parents are, are dealing with uh, you know mental health crises and, and chronic arrests. Um, you know you have children growing up in this environment where, uh, you know, sometimes they never feel like they really truly belong and their basic human needs go unmet for a significant period of their lives. That reward system in the brain is, is triggered when our needs are met. And so, you know, you have this kid growing up without their needs being met. They've never really felt that that reward feedback, um, the way that it's supposed to make us feel okay, like life is okay, that sense of well-being eventually get exposed to the opioid that triggers that part of the brain. And so for the first time in their life, all of a sudden that part of their brain explodes and it's this overwhelming sense of being okay for the first time in their life. And if you can imagine never feeling safe, never feeling like you belong, never feeling like your needs were met, never feeling like you were, you know, who you were supposed to be and always having this sense of dread. And then for the first time in your life, suddenly, overwhelmingly feeling okay for the very first time in your life and all that fear going away. Um, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful moment. And that's why people living in these clusters of poverty and growing up with chronic, um, stress, adverse childhood experiences, um, have, have been in the media for good reason, because, uh, you know, we, we have very solid evidence that the more adverse childhood experiences someone has, the more at risk they are, for all kinds of diseases, but one of those being uh, opioid use disorder. So then they're kind of stuck on this medicine um, that's helping them feel better. But when they try to quit it, um, it has such a powerful physiologic uh, drive that the withdrawal symptoms are, are, are just terrible. It's like the worst flu you can imagine having uh, with terrible nausea, shakes, uh, feeling um, like you can't 
settle down, uh, restlessness, diarrhea, chills. It's an excruciating experience, and it lasts for days uh, and days and days. And so, even when people try to get away from from opioids, um, you know the 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 hooks are so strong in that that they often have a hard time breaking away without medical help. So that people understand, opioids are a class of drug, as I understand it. That that's a broad category, but that includes things that we've probably heard of, like like heroin, oxycotton, Vicodin, uh, fentanyl. Right? Like these yes. are all considered okay. Prescription pain pills. Okay. Are they inexpensive? Because there's a lot of things a lot of people can get addicted to that help numb the pain that you have articulated. Is there something about opioids and their price point or their availability that made them particularly insidious in this community? Well, in the 1980s, um, the drug companies basically figured out that they can market uh, pain pills, prescription pain pills, directly to people, um, similar to you know, blood pressure medicine, diabetes medications, and that there was this this huge untapped market that if they could get these prescription pain pills prescribed on a routine basis to people, that that would be very lucrative. And at the time, um, what the research coming out was suggesting was that addiction was rare when the pain pills were being used to treat addiction. And so doctors were being given uh, literature and education programs um, on the need to treat pain more aggressively. Uh, a lot of pain um, organizations and um, even JCO, the organization that accredits uh, healthcare facilities, was really pushing uh, for pain to be treated more aggressively. Um, so you had this big marketing campaign. You had um, organizations, you know, pushing for pain to be treated more aggressively. And you had the data coming out that was suggesting that addiction was rare. And so there was this, this massive explosion of prescriptions going out to treat pain. And combining that with the deindustrialization and the clustering of poverty that was occurring with people growing up with chronic toxic stress, triggering that brain pathway that we had talked about a while ago, you combine those two things and you have a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what we saw. And so then you've got this opioid pandemic, but then can you connect the dots between uh, what you're seeing with so many of your patients coming in with HIV, but a drug-fueled, you're saying it was drug-fueled HIV. Is, can you connect all of that for us so we understand? Yeah. So you know, by the time we, we realized that people were were basically hooked on these pain pills, and uh, the medical community was becoming concerned uh, about this. Uh, we also know that that opioids um, can lead to respiratory de- depression, uh, which causes death when when people overdose. And so we were seeing this this surge of overdose deaths related to the increased prescribing of opioids, and that was that was very concerning to the medical community. And so the medical community began to try to do things to decrease the non-prescription use of opioids. Um, One of those tactics was um, to change the way that the pills were manufactured. In in Austin, the the pill that people preferred to use was called Opana, and they could crush it and snort it and and get this surge in that, that reward pathway part of the brain. Um, and get that that feeling that they were craving, decrease withdrawal experiences. So one thing that the manufacturer did is they changed the formulation of the pill so that if you crushed it to snort, 
uh, it turned into this gel and you really couldn't snort it. But because they couldn't ingest that pill, they were going through a lot of withdrawal. And so the drive to figure out a different way to, um, to take that, that drug was, was pretty strong. And so they, they learned that they could melt it down, draw it up in a syringe and inject it. So, um, the laws, you know, are, are set up to try to make it easier for law enforcement to arrest people who are using drugs. And, and one of the ways to do that is to use paraphernalia as evidence. And so, um, syringes could be used for evidence and drug enforcement laws in Indiana and a lot of other states. So that made it illegal really to possess a syringe with the intent to, to inject, which basically keeps um, harm reduction strategies um, that target um, people who are injecting um, to keep those injecting practices safe so that people aren't um, spreading diseases like hepatitis C and HIV. And so since people couldn't get clean syringes and they were injecting, um, syringes were really rare to come by. And so when you had a syringe, you kept it and you kept using it over and over and over and over again to the point where, you know, they got so dull, they would have to scratch them on like a brick to, to resharpen them. And they, they became, you know, the, the length of nothing that's really manufactured. You could measure them and say, this, this syringe is not a standard length is because they, they had filed it down so many times to resharpen it. But you can imagine it's, it's filthy, it's dirty. Oh. Um, and you know, drawing up the Opana in really any liquid they could find. And, and people were using toilet water, rainwater, any liquid they could find, they were using to melt down the syringes. So those two things combined, you know, people injecting, uh, people were experiencing, um, abscesses, uh, bacteria would go to the heart and they would develop endocarditis. And so we were seeing this in the community early on. Um, this is around 2011. And we knew something, you know, was happening. Um, then, you know, people were also sharing those syringes with other people who, who wanted to inject. So, uh, you know, one pill might be enough for four people. And so they would draw up one syringe uh, and pass it around the circle, and each person would inject with the same syringe, sharing a syringe. And so, you know, if somebody had hepatitis C in that circle, and they injected, that syringe is now contaminated with hepatitis C, and then the next person injects, they get hepatitis C. And so we were seeing the hepatitis C numbers increase. Well, this alerted public health experts, and, you know, people started asking the state to do something. The Indiana State Department of Health issued a report in 2012, you know, saying, hey, there's something really bad happening in Indiana, all of Indiana. You know, we see endocarditis and hepatitis C cases increasing. It's just a matter of time before HIV starts increasing because HIV is spread the exact same way as hepatitis C. And hepatitis C is often considered the harbinger for an HIV outbreak. So we knew, it, you know, as early as 2012, that this was an impending disaster you know, waiting to happen if we didn't do something to intervene. But, you know, between 2012 to 2015, nothing was done. And so in 2014, really, um, somebody with, with HIV was in the community um, sharing syringes with others. HIV started to spread throughout the community. 
by the time we recognized it, you know, towards the end of 2014, going into 2015, nearly 200 people had contracted um, HIV. Wow. The layers of systemic failure that you just like outlined are so hard to understand where to enter into that, right? Because it could have been, I mean, couldn't the rates of HIV been prevented, right? Like if the p- drug had stayed a powder or even if there were clean syringes available. I mean, that's like a weird thing to think about, but if there had been clean syringes, this would have avoided it. Like, how do you begin to enter into this just massive multi-front failure to try to affect some kind of change? I think it highlights how, you know, we have two healthcare systems. Yeah. In America, we have the, the, you know, the traditional, you know, mainstream fee-for-service healthcare system, but then we have the public health healthcare system. And they're separate, and they don't communicate well. And the public health um, system is not funded the same way. It's, it's often through through grants, and it's only those grants are targeted for things that the people in power think are important. With the war on drugs, you know, through the seventies um, and eighties, and moving forward, any public health measure that targeted the decreased spread of injection-related diseases um, was not funded because it was seen as enabling and uh, contrary to the law enforcement um, focus that the war on drugs had. It wasn't until really the the Scott County, the Austin, Indiana outbreak that I was a part of there that the country took things, you know, a different route with um, President Trump announcing that, um, you know, the opioid crisis was a public health emergency. That was the significance of him announcing that. Up until that point, um, the opioid crisis was really a law enforcement crisis. Um, At that moment, when we had the HIV outbreak, it captured enough attention from the the people who make the uh, policy decisions that then it became this public health issue. And we started seeing funding coming down to help us, you know, better treat people with uh, opioid use disorder, to better um, implement harm reduction strategies in communities. But for our community, it was too late. But you know, hopefully, it's helping other communities. So back to you. We find ourselves like in this story in the midst of just a massive series of basically. F- failures, systemic failures and prejudices and missteps that essentially are leading you back to, I mean, now you're in your practice in Austin, Indiana, young doctor, and you are seeing people coming in who are basically being decimated by the opioid epidemic and the resulting or connected HIV crisis. Something happens in you and you realize what's going on and you you start to see this whole issue that's affecting your town and broader and something in you changed and you decide you had to do something. Now you're staring down this giant. What does a young doctor have at his disposal to do to actually affect change? My voice was really about it. Um, And, you know, you're, you're talking about people whose voices are not heard. These are you know, communities of, you know, pockets of concentrated, you know, poverty that are using drugs and, you know, other uh, things that, you know, people don't like to even acknowledge, like, you know, um, sex work to, you know, I had women who 
uh, would tell me that that they exchanged sex for diapers just so that their children had diapers or food or a safe place to stay, you know, that that night. Um, and we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to acknowledge that 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 exists, um, but it does in a lot of places. Uh, it happens a lot, and that's not okay. But we don't like to talk about that, and so those vo- those voices, those stories are not not heard. If nothing else, I could lend my voice to, to them, and hopefully allow their voices to be uh, heard. <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised to find that that people didn't really want to hear what I had to say either. You know, Indiana's in in the middle of the, the Bible Belt. You know, I myself was you know was raised Southern Baptist. Um, my family came out of Appalachia, just like a lot of my patients did. My mom tells me stories about how they would have to like grab their belongings in the middle of the night and move to another uh, place because they were squatting in the place that they were uh, staying. And the the person that owned the shack or whatever had found out and they'd have to like move in the middle of the night. Wow. Um, that's how she grew up. And so, you know, we, we were raised with, with those stories and, you know, we came out of poverty and, you know, the stories, you know, from our church, you know, if you, if you work hard enough, if you have enough faith, you can accomplish anything. And, you know, that's the American dream, like we talked about, um, and it shouldn't be determined based on our circumstances. And that's what I, uh, experienced, you know, my, my mom, um, came out of poverty. I came out of poverty. We both became doctors actually about the same time. We went to medical school together, actually. Really? Which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Like the same school? Um, we started out at the same school, <laughs> and then I um, I uh, transferred to Indiana University for yeah. my third and fourth years and Got graduated it. from from there. That's really fun that you and your mom were doing that at the same time. Yeah. It just shows that you know when, when you have access to security, uh, that sense of belonging and that support, and you combine that with access to opportunity, that, that hard work determination that my mom showed and, and taught me and I followed, uh, pays off. You know, we really can accomplish that American dream. And I, I accomplished that. We came out of poverty and became a doctor. Yeah. That's a great story. And, you know, I came to Austin expecting that to be able to motivate and inspire my patients to, to, to do the same. But what I found was there were two things lacking that kept their their persistence and hard work and good choices from, from making a difference. And that was one that, that safety and security w- was missing from growing up in homes that were unstable without that sense of belonging and that, that firm foundation. And then the lack of access was also missing. So when they were trying hard and making good decisions, it really wasn't, um, you know, hitting, um, that the road, so to speak and, and mattering, uh, to where they got traction to to move forward, they were just kind of spinning their wheels, and so you you develop this sense of um, learned helplessness. Like, why try? Why why make an effort? Because nothing I do matters. And um, so when I when I recognized that you know people were being harmed by their circumstances, not their decisions, you know, I started to change how I viewed the, the community and and the opportunity that they had, and. So I lent my voice to to them to to go to churches, to go to hospitals, to go to public health organizations and the state. And um, you know, a lot of the answers that I got back was that you know my patients were experiencing the consequences of of their bad choices in life. 
and that wasn't okay. <laughs> yeah. Because it wasn't just that. They they were lacking that safety and security, those basic human needs that were going unmet. And they were lacking the really the access to opportunity for their choices to to make a difference. And um, so I spent years, you know, just trying to to get people to hear that that wasn't enough. It wasn't just about um, their their choices, whether or not they were making good or bad choices. It was about something systemic that there was basically structural violence that was harming my patients and keeping them from achieving health. And we needed to break those barriers down um, to make it easier for when they do struggle against those barriers, that their efforts are paid off by overcoming them instead of being pushed back down into that lifestyle that they were, um, that they were in. I want to, if I can, step a little bit behind the medical professional, because you're still a person with preconceived notions and bias and even judgment, like because, because you're a human and you're faced with people in your practice whose lives are subject to a lot of preconceived notions and bias and judgment. I'm curious if you'd be willing to take us a little bit behind that professional exterior and let us into a bit of what you thought about the afflicted and how you were able to to reconcile that, both professionally and personally. When I first started in Austin, I believed that if you made good choices in life, that those good choices would pay off and you would move ahead. Um, you would achieve your goals. Um, if you didn't give up, you kept working hard, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. And if um, that wasn't happening in your life, it was because you weren't trying hard enough, um, that you weren't making you know, the right decisions. And so when I first started you know, working with, with some patients, especially people who were, were using drugs, um, especially having uh, a family with um, some history of substance use disorder. My my grandpa and my Aunt Sally both drank a lot, and they both used prescription painkillers. They both died way younger than they should have because of that. Um, my grandpa died in his 50s, and my, my Aunt Sally died in her 30s from an overdose. That's something that I don't shake easily. Um, and when I'm working with people you know, early on with, uh, that were using prescription painkillers. I, I honestly had this aversion to it. Like I didn't want to go there because it was too close to what I had experienced growing up, going over to family members' houses and seeing a table just filled with prescription bottles, um, knowing something really dark and, and destructive was occurring there. And that these were my family members that I cared about and I didn't want to see anything bad happen to them. Um, yet, you know, they were in jail a lot. They were in hospitals uh, from overdoses and, and other complications and then died, you know, way too soon. Um, I didn't really want to have anything to do with that early on and just felt that if, you know, they wanted help, they could get help. There's a patient that really kind of stands out in my mind. And in, in the book, I call her Samantha. And I had basically just dismissed her from my practice, you know, early on uh, because I, I found that she was using drugs and that's just was standard treatment for people. Um, at the time, you know, we were trained to just dismiss somebody because they, they weren't really worth that's, that's a hard thing to say now. It's just, they weren't yeah. worth, uh, the effort. Um, that's hard. Yeah. 
and then, you know, as I experienced more and more and started realizing that, you know, there, there are circumstances that were beyond, you know, some people's control that kind of led them to that life. And unless they had access to help, how could they get out of that, that life? It's like being in a, you know, deep, dark pit without anyone there to help you out of it. You know, it's, 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 um, it, it's easy to give up. And so Samantha, uh, you know, went years um, of her life without having a doctor, I believe, because um, I had kicked her out. And then, um, you know, years later, I met her again in the emergency department where I was moonlighting and she was having abdominal pain. And I started working her up and, you know, we kind of awkwardly said hello to each other. And there was some tension, you know, related to that because of what had happened. And at some point she... Um, she or her boyfriend had given me this letter that she had carried around just explaining why um, she was using drugs at the time and that she had grown up, you know, in one of those toxic homes and had boyfriends that were abusing her and the pain pills relieved some of that stress in life and was really the only thing that she had found to help her feel okay. And she didn't want to use them, but um, she was so dependent on them. She'd have terrible withdrawal and she just didn't feel right without them, but she needed help. But I dismissed her instead. And um, she was basically asking, you know, I, I don't want pain pills. I just want help. Will you help me? And so I, I felt like I had a second chance uh, with Samantha that I would be able to work with her and, and help her, hopefully help her get connected to the right resources to be able to thrive in life instead of, you know, suffering as much as she had been suffering. And uh, I started to feel a little optimistic about that. And I'd be able to go in and just say, hey, Samantha, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to get through this together. And yeah, I'd be happy to take you back. And about that time, uh, her CT results came back. And I, I looked at the screen and my heart sunk and, you know, had overwhelming emotion, you know, uh, well up because the, the CT results showed that uh, she had metastatic cervical cancer. Oh, man. And again, you know, if she had regular medical care, it's something that we could have caught early and prevented. But because I'd cut her off, I felt like I had failed her. I, I had participated in violence against her by not allowing her access to really the only doctor that she had access to. And she had gone years without care. And here she was with metastatic cervical cancer. So I, I still worked with her, but it was in a different way. It was basically to to help her, you know, die, you know, with some dignity over the next few months, um, instead of finding that life that she had always wanted. <laughs> what does that do to you? Like, I, obviously, it's deeply emotional just in the moment, just to hear it. But I mean, what does that change about how you practice, or what you do, or even just what your vocational life is about at that point? Because that's a lot. I didn't want to ever be a part of um, a system that caused violence to my patients again. Mm -hmm. And so my philosophy changed quite a bit around that time. It was her and some other things that had happened. But basically, you know, I, I wanted to listen to people's stories, set aside my own story, my own personal biases and beliefs and really enter into their story and experience what it was to be them and to live their experiences. 
and to hear that, really, you know, really hear that. And instead of coming to them with the answers, you know, you need to take this medicine, you need to follow up in this many months and here's some labs and we'll look at your data and blah, blah, blah. But to really, you know, hear what they needed, what barriers they were bumping up against that were preventing them from being able to have that, the life that they really, truly wanted, and then help them partner with them to figure out ways to overcome those, those boundaries and barriers. So it became more about, um, instead of the, you know, the, the traditional Hippocratic oath, do no harm, it became protect from harm. And if my patients were being harmed by a system that prevented them access to health, wealth, and opportunity, then I needed to protect them from that harm by, again, first hearing their, their stories, understanding what it was to have their lived experiences, and then respond to, to those, um, those needs, bringing access to, um, to those opportunities that they may not have otherwise have. In our last few moments here, um, I feel like we just got started, but it is worth noting that you have written all about what we've been talking about um, in the book that we talked about in the intro voiceover, Canary in the Coal Mine. Why write that book? Because it's more than a memoir. It's it's for us to read and understand. Like, What is your hope for us in interacting with your book? There's a couple of reasons I wrote it, and I titled it Canary in the Coal Mine you know, first, because it is a warning yeah. that when we allow these 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 pockets of communities in crisis to exist and not do something to help, that's the canary, and it doesn't stay there. It affects all of us, as the 2020 you know COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated to us. Without solid community health for everyone, we suffer. Everyone suffers. We we all suffer by having our way of life threatened, by having our liberties threatened, by having our health threatened, and having our economic prosperity threatened. Uh, a recent Surgeon General report directly linked community health with economic prosperity. By allowing these, these pockets of communities in crisis to, to exist and not doing something about it, it's threatening, you know, the entire community. So it's a warning. You know, this is the canary. We need to act now to do something different. And then it's also, you know, meant to be kind of a roadmap of, of how how that looks. Um, that we we need to not come to the communities with the answers to swoop in and save the day or to say, if you just did this and this and this, you would be okay. But to first invite them in to the community, allow them that, that safety, that sense of belonging to be a part of the partner, you know, partner with them to be a part of the solution, to listen. What is it, what is it like to have, to be, to grow up in this community? What is it like to have your lived experiences? And what are the, the boundaries that you're bumping up against that you can't overcome without some help? And instead of just, you know, throwing solutions that direction, you know, listen and then respond to the needs that are expressed with actionable solutions um, that both honor their agency and their cultural significance in, in that community. And each community is going to be different. You know, an urban community is going to look different than a rural community. A, a black or brown community is going to look different than a white community. And it's going to take a willingness to partner with the communities, listen to them, and respond to the needs that they have uniquely there 
that honors their agency to allow the the choices that they make to matter by eliminating the barriers that they see in their lives, not that we see in their lives. You know, we may see, well, if you made a better choice or if you did this and this and this, that you would be okay. And that's easy to sit back from a distance and say that, but we don't really understand what it is to live that experience unless we ask and understand. And then we can start understanding what the solutions are. The interventions that we provide become more effective. You know, we spend a lot of money every year nationally to change poverty, to change poor outcomes and health outcomes and increase life expectancy and to decrease deaths. We spend a lot of money on that, but it's just throwing um, money at a problem to make ourselves feel good, to serve our own agendas um, from a political standpoint or an ideological standpoint. But if we really truly want to make a difference, you know, we're going to reverse that and, and listen to people first and, and hear what it is to be them and respond to their needs with actionable solutions, with them as partners and a legitimate seat at the table. Well, my deepest thanks to Dr. Cook, both for his work and his story. A link to his book, Canary in the Coal Mine, can be found in our show notes. I will be very curious to hear what you have to say and your thoughts on this conversation. We are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them are at the handle New Activist Is, and our website is newactivist.is. As always, big thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His tour dates, music, merch, everything can be found at prophiphop.com, or he is on Twitter, at prophiphop. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Dr. William Cook, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Kuffeltz. Take care, friends. Take care, friends.